My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Keach, and today we got to sit down and have a chat with Amir Ednani, the CEO of Uranium Energy Corp and the chairman of Gold Mining Inc. Now, when I moved to Vancouver in my 20s, I just made the leap from the technical side of the business to the business side of mining, and I was really looking to make my way there, and one of the first things I did was start attending conferences. Now, at these conferences, you get to listen to various CEOs and investors give you their thoughts on the industry or describe their company to you. And one of the presenters that really stood out to me was Amir. Um, Amir is has a way of presenting in that he's able to very eloquently package complex topics in such a way that the average investor, even one who might know next to nothing about uranium, can both understand and then act upon should he or she choose to. What was equally notable about Amir at the time and and today is that he's very young. So Amir is only 40 today, but he started UEC when he was 27 and he's been running it successfully for the last 13 years. So as you might imagine, I was very much looking forward to our conversation today and was in no way disappointed. When I sat down with Amir, we discussed his background what it was like coming from a family of entrepreneurs who immigrated to Canada from Iran when he was a kid, and what led him to founding UEC not long after graduating from the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. Amir gave me an excellent overview of the current political situation in the U.S. and how it pertains to the uranium space and the nuclear space. We also dig into the aspects that make UEC a unique opportunity. I learned a lot speaking with Amir today and really can't recommend this podcast enough for the aspiring entrepreneurs, whether in the mining and metal space or elsewhere, uranium bulls, of course, but even more so uranium bears. Amir really has a unique perspective on the industry and is able to identify opportunities that are often overlooked by people that are not immersed in the uranium market to the degree that he is. So without further ado, let me please introduce Amir Adnani. Amir, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you are the CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation. You're also the chairman of Gold Mining Inc. Um, You wear a lot of hats and you're busy these days. When you meet people, what do you tell them you do and what does your uh, day-to-day sort of look like? Uh, Sure. I mean, um, I'm... I'm an entrepreneur. I, I've been um, uh, building and starting and building resource companies for about 15 years now. And um, I, I, I talk about the two yellow medals because the two, the two hats that I primarily wear are is really just as, as a founder and CEO of uh, Uranium Energy. I've uh, been at that for uh, over 13 years now. And uh, as founder and chairman of Gold Mining, and that's now about uh, eight years uh, into it, um, you know, I, I, as an entrepreneur, um, uh, I, I see a lot of interesting parallels between forming and building companies as I do in uh, 
being a parent because I'm also <laughs> a parent to uh, three kids ages uh, four, eight, and ten. And I think of the two companies almost in the same context as I do uh, raising kids. You know, it takes just a ton of commitment and dedication. And um, I think a lot of the um, investors and people that over the years have come to learn um, what we do at gold mining and UEC appreciate the fact that uranium and gold have been difficult commodities and sectors to be in over the last uh, five or seven years. Yep. And so for uh, entrepreneurs to be in difficult sectors, I mean, I just think it takes a certain kind of trait. It's not, you know, kind of fun or glorious, but I just genuinely believe, and I think we've really aligned ourselves with contrarian investors. I'm, besides being an entrepreneur, a fairly uh, kind of a natural contrarian myself and uh, really kind of believe in the fact that the commodity business that we're in is a very cyclical business. And I think there's different ways to create value and shareholder value, but I believe one of the key ways to create shareholder value is what you pay for an asset. So, you know, for us to have built a very strong asset base and, and project base in, in both companies during bear market environments, um, I think will be a, it really is an important fundamental belief in, in, how, in how we're kind of building and advancing these two companies. So it's two yellow medals is for contrarian investors and, um, that's that's kind of how I how, that's how I would introduce it. Okay, so how old are you now, Amir? I just turned forty. Forty, and you've got two companies under your belt. One of them's thirteen years old. So you started UEC when you were twenty-seven. That's right. So you're twenty-seven years old. You're from Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, you don't come from a technical background, is that right? Uh, not really. I mean, I really come from more of that business entrepreneurial yeah. background. I did complete a science degree at UBC. Uh, but I didn't go on to become a professional geoscientist. Right. So what what was it that drew you specifically to mining? I think it was my background and maybe just uh, really from a very young age, um, kind of watching and, and really like admiring what my dad was doing. He was an entrepreneur as well. Mm-hmm. He was um, uh, very involved in the steel business uh, in Iran, uh, which is where I was born. Uh, and I just uh, remember at a very young age kind of just being really fascinated by the idea of being in business and kind of this idea of hard assets. And I think, you know, my, when my family moved to Vancouver and go to UBC, mm-hmm. I think in a way it's kind of hard not to connect those dots if you've had any kind of inkling of interest in commodities at a young age, which, which I did. And then to end up in Vancouver and at UBC where you know, we have one of the best earth science programs anywhere in the world at UBC and plus Vancouver is really like a, a, an epicenter of resource sector and resource industry anywhere yeah. in the world. I mean, how, it's like, how can you not become a tech entrepreneur if you didn't live in, let's say, Silicon Valley, right? And so I think living in Vancouver, you, you kind of naturally see that it's a great city to, to launch a career into the resource business. And frankly, it's easy. I mean, you and I can walk up and down the streets of downtown Vancouver and the lawyers, the accountants, the technical consulting companies know their way around the mining industry, right? right. And it makes, makes it so much easier to get in uh, that way. No, there's probably nowhere else in the world that's as geared towards helping a mining entrepreneur launch their career as Vancouver. Absolutely. So, did you work for another mining company or did you... Or did you work for a series of businesses and then you started to see the opportunity in uranium? No, I don't think I've ever really worked for anyone or, or <laughs> held other jobs. I started a few private companies right out of university, right out of UBC. And 
2005, um, uh, it kind of led to forming uranium energy. And um, that's all she wrote. And I mean, at that point, as you pointed out, I was 27. So yeah. it, was, uh, it wasn't exactly, <laughs> you know, decades of experience before getting into those shoes. Sort of trial by fire at that point. I yeah. And, and, you know, the, the other thing is that um, it, it's, this is very important to highlight because, um, you know, I, I have a very strong uh, view that... Um, uh, business and building a business is a, is a team sport. Uh, you're as good as your team, and um, you know any smart entrepreneur will surround himself or herself with people with more experience and with uh, uh, you know greater capabilities. And I think that's the hallmark of any good business is the depth and quality of the people, and um, and but also combining the entrepreneurial energy and vision. Uh, with the, the the kind of meat and potato of technical understanding mm -hmm. for any sector. So when you look at uranium energy from the very beginning, uh, in 2006, when a lot of uranium companies that were being formed were focusing on acquiring projects, if you go back and look at our news releases in 2006, we were focused on acquiring people. We were so obsessed with finding technical expertise, and part of it was I felt it was a real shortage of human capital in the uranium business because not i mean mining in general i think we have this generational issue whereas because a lot of people during the bear market you didn't come out of university and think let me go get into mining no so there's this generational gap in in most uh commodity focused businesses but it's quite steep in uranium right where i think the stat is something along the lines where today there's something like 500 jobs in the uranium mining business back in the 70s it was 40,000 Total. So there are total, total, uh, and so you you kind of look at that, and you, sorry, when I say total, I'm talking about the U.S. where right. where, where our kind of uh, focuses. Uh, but to go back to, uh, to to the idea of you know my background, I mean I think a big part of both gold mining and UEC has been about getting really exceptional people on board to team up with, to partner up with, uh, and um, and and that's that's been again something that we've done both at UEC and gold mining. So despite uh, sort of my my um, youth and energy that I brought to the table as a founder in uh, 2005 with UEC, really early on, I was just really blessed and fortunate that some really top-notch people uh, teamed up and we partnered up. And, you know, with UEC, we went from a business plan in 2005 to production in 2010. I mean, that's actually what happened. Now, mind you, we didn't forecast Fukushima happening in early 2011. Right. And that, that complicated things. Uh, to say the least for the sector as a whole not yeah, just UEC exactly but when you look back that was those were the dates literally to December 2005 we got up and running and December 2010 we flicked the switch at Palangana and we were mining uranium and you know this being in the resource business five years to go from a business plan to early production especially in a complicated sector like uranium um, it's pretty and, much unheard of it's, it, it was fast it was it was good so were there any key mentors you had at that time that helped guide you through the space and help building a company at all? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, first of all, people that um, uh, on the investment side of the mining business that I've really kind of looked up to and, and over the years have become you know friends of or mentors, that they've become men mentors to me and, frankly, have also become shareholders of the company. Um, you know, I, I very early on kind of appreciated what guys like Ross Speedy were doing because Ross also went to the University of British Columbia. He's local here. 
Um, and I really appreciated how he had built Pan American Silver, was just committed right. to building a, a mid-tier producer. And I always kind of had that vision for uranium energy. People would say, well, you know, what's the exit? And I said, you know, there's a shortage of uranium producers that we want to be a dominant producer. We're, we're not looking just to develop a property and sell out. Um, and, you know, UEC has been very focused on becoming a producer and kind of being that uh, player in a, in a sector where there's shortage or scarcity of producers. You look at what Ross did with Lumina Copper, that really resonated with me and kind of formed the basis for gold mining, right? Basically buy out-of-money yeah. resources in the ground when, um, when, when things are, when we're in a cyclical low in the commodity cycle uh, and, uh, you know, look to build value that way. So, I think that was that was one person. Guys like you know, you look at people like uh, Rick Rule. I mean, he's a kind of the classic contrarian investor. You know, it's sort of like what uh, Benjamin Graham is to value investing. I think Rick Rule is to kind of <laughs> speculative investing. So, yeah. um, I've been fortunate to have people like that make time for me, be available there initially as mentor, initially as people you would sound ideas off of, and be just a great kind of uh, uh, intellectual resource but then become a major backer, become a major shareholder. I mean, Sprott and Rick Rule are major backers of mine at UEC and Gold Mining. And so as an entrepreneur, what else can you ask for? I'm just naming a couple, but, you know, I, I can go into every some really key members of uh, both companies' team and board of directors. And I view uh, the team and the board also as people that you develop those kinds of relationships with where they could be advisors, they can be a sounding board, they could be friends, they could be all those things. And it makes life more interesting when you can work with people that not only do you have a common interest with and in creating long-term value for your company, but you also appreciate and respect their thoughts that at the end of the day you can break bread with and have a drink with and, and you yeah. know, makes, makes, makes your day that much more interesting, right? Yeah, and I guess when you're an entrepreneur and you're spending however many hours per week uh, on the road or working, the ability to actually enjoy the time with the people you're spending with makes all the difference in something it makes like a lot of difference you're absolutely right so i want to shift gears now and talk about the uranium market in general mm -hmm. um i'll start with a question that i'm always curious about what do you see people getting wrong about uranium today like what do people not know that they should know the problem we have today in 2018 with uranium that maybe uh it kind of muddies the water a bit is that this bear market we've been in since Fukushima has gone on for so long that there's almost disbelief in the sector now amongst investors of the fact that we're finally seeing fundamental rebalancing in the market. But um, we've had the football taken away from us so many times. There have been a number of false starts over mm -hmm. the last few years that I think overall there's a arguably a healthy level of skepticism in the market that people are almost uh, become more focused on show me the goods as opposed to reading the tree leaves and so i mean it's almost like instead of i think today people are missing the fact that the supply cuts that we've seen in the market over the last six months are way more uh, fundamentally positive for uh, the uranium sector moving forward in the near term and long term then let's say any Japanese reactor restart would have been. For years post-Fukushima, there was such a singular focus on the pace of Japanese reactor restarts. And that disappointed because the pace of restarts was much slower, took yep. way longer, and not as many reactors as people thought would came, come online, came online. 
And ultimately, that led to this, I think, uh, feeling of fatigue or uh, skepticism amongst investors. And again, I think that might be clouding people's uh, thinking or vantage point into seeing the reality of what's going on today, which has less to do with Japan and again, more to do with supply side discipline. And this is the cuts we're seeing in Kazakhstan, the cuts we've seen with Cigar Lake, this sort of thing that we're seeing a fundamental change in the actual supply of uranium for the first time in the last, I don't know, several years at least. Uh, and, and also uh, some of the government stockpiles. So yes, you're absolutely right. We're, we're going to talking about basically the world's number one and number two, Kazadon Prom and Cameco, becoming uh, very motivated, very vocal and doing something about the, the very low uranium price uh, by shutting down mines and reducing uh, production from uh, uh, big mines. I mean, you know, for Cameco, shutting down MacArthur River wasn't shutting down a third-tier mine. That was a first-tier mine. That's a world-class yeah. deposit. So I think people kind of uh, lose the fact that for a producer to put his best asset on uh, basically cold shutdown uh, is a, is, it should be sending a much more uh, powerful message than perhaps has been felt uh, uh, in the sector or in the, in the equity valuations. But also... Department of Energy. Look at the fact that the Department of Energy in the U.S. was selling uranium under their barter deals and earlier this year announced that they were going to stop doing that for this year and now have recently announced that they're going to halt that program for next year as well. So not only are we seeing uh, supply cuts from what we call primary supply, which would be mine production, but we're also seeing uh, the secondary supplies, the above ground inventories become also less available to the market. So, so just before you ask the next question, but just to uh, put that in context for the listener, this year's projected supply of uranium from mining is expected to be about 140 million pounds. Projected demand for uranium this year is supposed to be just over 190 million pounds. So even with secondary supplies or inventories factored in to meet the gap between yep. supply and the, we will have a supply deficit this year in the uranium market. This would be probably the first time since Fukushima that we've seen or are seeing a supply deficit and the market uh, finally tightening up and uh, turning a corner. Unlike other people we've talked to, uh, UEC specifically or primarily focused on mining uranium in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about um, the supply and demand dynamics in the U.S. particularly? I, I was I remember I remember to this day, I mean, for me as an entrepreneur, I was absolutely fascinated in 2005 by the fact that in 2005, the U.S. was producing, I want to say maybe I think at the time it was something like five or six million pounds of uranium and consuming uh, over 50 million pounds of uranium. So there was basically this dynamic where. 90% of U.S. reactor requirements were not being mined in the U.S. I was fascinated by that, right? Because I thought, well, geez, this, this, this looks like a good long-term opportunity mm-hmm. where there has to be greater U.S. Uh, production and domestic sources. Here we are 13 years later. I mean, I thought it was crazy when it was uh, you know, only, only um, 10% of requirements being mined. Today, uh, we're down to almost zero. I mean, this year, domestic production of uranium in the U.S. is going to be 800,000 pounds, 
What that means is that 98% of U.S. reactor requirements are being imported or not met through mining. Put another way, this is an interesting way of looking at it. There's 99 reactors in the U.S. Yep. U.S. mined uranium will be sufficient to meet the needs of one reactor. That's, that's, that's the best way to look at it, in my opinion, right? And these reactors in the U.S., they're operating. They're generating 20% of U.S. electricity, 60% of carbon-free electricity. They're a very important part of the grid and grid reliability because they're baseload power, as nuclear power is. So now what I never anticipated was that you would end up with an administration in the U.S. like the one we have now where even as you and I are doing this interview, and not to date stamp this, but today in the news you've seen recently, again, the implementation of tariffs on steel and aluminum. And yeah. you're seeing, uh, and, and not to get into a debate about whether tariffs are good or bad and, and whether trade wars are good or bad, but this is the reality of the world we're in. And we have a very uh, determined U.S. administration that wants to address the supply chain of raw material that are important to certain industries in the U.S., including not just steel and aluminum, but uranium. Now, as I understood it, under the Obama administration, uh, they were selling off uranium stockpiles. Is that right? It, uranium had gone from being classified as a strategic metal that was protected by the U.S. to one that could be sold. And that's since changed under the Trump administration? Definitely very different, let's say, priorities between um, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And I don't think that's lost on anyone because obviously on many issues and topics that's, you know, every day in the news, there's yeah. obviously a different viewpoint uh, with, this, with this administration and the former one. And when it comes to nuclear power, not just the issue of uranium, but nuclear power in general was simply not prioritized by the previous administration. There was a strong emphasis placed on renewables. Um, and um, there's an almost like an opposite viewpoint here with, with this administration that sees nuclear power as an important source of energy uh, for electricity generation and sees the fact that the U.S. needs to have a seat at the table globally as well. 70% mm -hmm. of reactors under construction in the world are Chinese or Russian designs. I think the U.S. feels that this is something that's a bit of a lost leadership situation, that the U.S. has had a very strong leadership position in for decades, and today, frankly, at the global level, doesn't lead anymore. And that's a bit of a tactical, strategic shortfall, because nuclear power, even today, is almost a $700, $800 billion business when you think about how many reactors are under construction worldwide. If you build a nuclear reactor for a country, so take Russia, they go and build a nuclear reactor for, let's say, Saudi Arabia, which wants to buy or build yep. um, 16 nuclear power plants. It's a massive program, right? So if you're Russia, you're China, and you go and build the Saudis a nuclear reactor, you've in essence forged a 50-year multilateral you know, a relationship where, right. because you know, it takes 10 years from start to planning to design to construction to getting the reactor up and running these reactors once they're up and running they're 40 50 year life operations and so what a fantastic way to forge diplomatic relationships between countries through creation of you know nuclear power diplomacy almost right the u.s has lost that because how many reactors on the construction today are built by westinghouse westinghouse is in bankruptcy or is just coming out of bankruptcy yeah. so um, I think this administration just has a fundamentally different view of it, 
And you, you could appreciate this. Like, how could the U.S. lead the world when it comes to nuclear power when it doesn't even mine enough uranium to meet the needs of its own nuclear fleet? So ultimately, to lead any sector, you need to be a player in that sector. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think there's such an importance being placed on prioritizing uranium. Like, to your point, uranium is now on the final list of critical minerals that the Department of Interior came out with just recently. And um, they're recommending to uh, the president by August 16th, I think, about uh, ways to boost domestic production. Now, I want to sort of dig into that a little bit. Sure. Is is the U.S. not mining uranium because there's no uranium in the U.S. to mine? Or is it because they've made it so difficult to get permitted or to push those projects forward that it's almost been forgotten by the industry? Well, I mean, my experience is like directly at the heart of this because with uranium energy, you know, we have permitted a number of uranium mines over our 13-year history. We've leased and drilled and made discoveries in the U.S. I mean, Mm -hmm. as you pointed out at the very beginning, we have a very U.S.-centric business. Um, You and I are sitting in Vancouver, but UEC is actually a U.S. domicile company based down in Corpus Christi in South Texas. And I can tell you, I mean, it shouldn't take longer to permit a uranium mine than permitting a nuclear power plant. And that's how, <laughs> that's how ridiculous it has gotten in the U.S. And is that true? It takes... Well, yeah. I mean, look at, look at the Reno Creek project. We have this project uh, called Reno Creek. It's an ISR project in Wyoming's Powder River Basin. Now, this is Wyoming, which is home to uranium mining, long history of it. It's not a place where you would expect to have local opposition, and, and we don't, but when you look at the timeline of permitting for this project, they filed the app, the application originally was filed in 2010. The final permits were not issued until February 2017. That's seven years to permit an ISR uranium mine, which is environmentally friendly, low footprint, not some big massive open, open pit operation. That's almost longer than what it takes to permit a nuclear power plant. So to your point, Absolutely, it is about the fact that we've, we've, we've kind of gotten away from recognizing that this is a vital industry and a vital industry needs to have a, a, a streamlined and predictable permitting process yep. that doesn't become so cumbersome that you lose your global competitiveness. Where, where are you seeing these delays? Are they at the federal level or the state level primarily? Well, that's a really good question. And it used to, I think it existed due to what you could call... Uh, dual track or triple track permitting yeah. where the exact same application the exact same issues that need to be looked at were being looked at both by the feds and at the state level and then sometimes at the state level by multiple agencies now in wyoming this is improving um as of even october of this year so this fall uh wyoming is transitioning into becoming an agreement state so this is the kind of stuff that should happen so what does that mean Instead of a company, as of fall of this year, having to go to both Washington, D.C., to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the state to apply for uranium mining permits, it now can, because of the agreement state status that Wyoming has applied for and finally gained, mm-hmm. you can only do, you, you can get away with just state-level permitting, one-stop shopping. Now, we've had this in Texas for as long as we've, UEC has been there, and this was something that really attracted me to Texas because Texas, Texas has been a, a, an agreement state for a long time. And you might wonder, because you might say, well, 
how come in the last kind of decade there's been all these mines permitted in South Texas or Palangana mine or Brocol? I mean, they were all permitted by us, but us being UEC. But hey, we've permitted three projects in South Texas more than any other state. Well, that's because it's an agreement state. So there's some good models that demonstrate how you can uh, streamline permitting, still obviously have really good standards for permitting. No one's talking about just kind of having a walk through the park, but there's, you know, there's one extreme and then there's the other extreme of things taking too long. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, look, when it comes to geologic endowment, uh, there is very strong uh, geologic profile for uranium in places like South Texas and Wyoming, especially for rural front uranium deposits that could be amenable to in-situ recovery. So let's actually talk about that for a second. So in-situ recovery, ISR, is something that UEC has been focused on and something that sets you guys apart from a lot of your competitors in the space. Can you tell listeners what that is? It's an alternative to hard rock mining. It's an alternative to earth moving. So in all conventional mining, open pit or underground, you're mining ore. In institute recovery, you target ore or deposits that are in a sandstone setting where you have a permeable environment with um, confining layers above and below the sandstone setting. And uranium that is there deposited in what is called a roll front where it's basically the uh, the oxidation reduction front where it's a geochemical environment where uranium gets deposited over geologic time. Uh, you look to reverse Mother Nature's process. So Mother Nature over time has deposited this uranium there as uranium in the water system has precipitated out when it encounters a reducing environment. And the reducing environment in places like South Texas would be caused by the deep-seated oil and gas deposits. In Wyoming, it's the coal bit methane environments. And this geologic setting uh, is really ideal for this kind of deposit, the style of deposit. So by injecting water and oxygen, gaseous oxygen, you dissolve the uranium in solution. So hence reversing the mother nature process and recover the uranium in solution. So going back to step one, instead of mining, you're basically recovering the uranium in solution. Instead okay. of digging and excavating, you're just basically uh, dissolving the uranium out. So you can appreciate the capex profile for institute recovery right. is in the tens of millions compared to hundreds of millions for hard rock mining. So you had mentioned that you were mining in Texas yeah. at one point. In sure. 2010, was that when you shut off the mine? No, we started in 2010. Sorry. We shut off by late 2013. So we, in essence, operated for about four years. And was that via ISR or... Yep, that was uh, with ISR. So we had direct experience with this as a company, demonstrating proof of concept, yep. demonstrating numbers, results, over a meaningful amount of time. I mean, enough to demonstrate what can happen. But of course, we saw the uranium price coming off, and we just did not believe fundamentally that we wanted to deplete the resources that had taken us five years to permit at the bottom of the cycle. Yeah, so I want to stop and talk about that for a second, because sure. that's a very hard decision to make yeah it was a hard decision yeah. and a very unusual decision for most miners to take uh you know rick rule has said of the uranium space what did people do when the price dropped miners being miners they tried to make it up with volume You're right so you took the opposite approach to that can you sort of walk us through how yourself and the board came to that decision and why you believed it was best for uec and for shareholders well i think first of all uh, it, it starts with maybe 
having equity skin in the game and, and having a long-term view because uh, the, it, it really starts with that. I think you have to ask yourself, what's our timeline and how much skin do we have in the game and what kind of long-term value are we trying to create? We have, myself and my team, we have a lot of skin in the game here and we, we're collectively, like, I'm, I'm the, the largest individual shareholders. My team, you know, collectively, we have strong vested interest in the equity and we're not in it for a quick flip, right? We're in this for the long term. Here right. we are 13 years. So you kind of look at it long term and say, okay, long term, you create more shareholder value by uh, protecting an ore body that has taken five, six years to permit. Keep it tucked away nicely, uh, you know, under a mine permit and, and stable jurisdictions and look to add to it by acquiring projects during a bear market and permitting and building a bigger base of asset. Or do you just mine at any price just so you can say you're a miner, right? And just right. so you can maintain some kind of maybe, I don't know, status or something. And we just, uh, we just we take the view that long-term will create more value by uh, putting the project on hold, not mining into a bear market environment, and, and really instead using the bear market as a window to make acquisitions. That was our playbook. Now, some, you know, yeah. And it's not a question of, I don't say it's right or wrong. I just say, look, that's our playbook, and we've executed that, right? How how have you grown uh, via via acquisitions over the last few years since you decided to put the mine on Karen Maintenance? Yeah, so I mean, you know, we were primarily a Texas focused company when we uh, put Palangana on hold, and we've continued to grow our business in South Texas. We made a grassroots discovery there at Burkalo. We permitted the Goliath project. We took the grassroots discovery at Burkalo, and then we got our mine permits and, and aquifer exemption and deep disposal wells for that project. So all of that was our continued growth in South Texas. That's really kind of our bread and butter. Mm -hmm. But we've now grown the business into Wyoming. We've acquired resource stage, preliminary economic assessment stage projects in Colorado and Arizona. We now have a large diversified U.S. portfolio of projects where our primary focus is institute recovery. But we use the downturn to buy optionality as well. Our Arizona-Colorado projects are hard rock mining projects, but uh, we bought them again at the very low point in the cycle, mm -hmm. uh, basically 10 cents on the dollar kind of acquisitions. And these are in mining-friendly jurisdictions where that optionality value would be realized uh, into a better uh, U.S. uranium market environment. We've also grown the business outside of the U.S. So while 90% of our assets are in the U.S., We've acquired projects in Paraguay, where we basically saw it as an opportunity to take our expertise when it comes to ISR. And because land acquisition was cheaper and easier, instead yeah. of buying single projects, we were able to buy a district. And we control 700,000 acres in Paraguay. And um, it, again, these were post-Fukushima acquisitions. So it was relatively inexpensive and utilizing a lot of historic work that was done in that country. Uh, we've even made a small acquisition recently in um, Athabasca Basin in Wyoming, uh, sorry, in Canada, uh, Wyoming. But um, long and short of it is that we definitely have a very strong core focus on institute recovery. And that's reflected on the main business that we have in Texas and Wyoming, where we now have fully permitted projects that shows a, an ability and a production profile to get to 4 million pounds of ISR production. That's our focus, but we also have incredible optionality with a portfolio of diverse uranium projects, mainly resource stage, mainly in the U.S., 
but with Paraguay and uh, some exploration in Canada, giving us again a very nice space. And having acquired this pipeline at the bottom of the cycle at $20 uranium, which is a 10 year low for the uranium business. So you've actually done uh, what everyone says that they should do is, uh, you know, sell high, buy low and perform acquisitions at the bottom of the market. I, I know it sounds like that, right? Because you're right, <laughs> it, it really is the common thing you always hear. But it's not the common thing you see. I agree with you. And, and you know, I put my money where my mouth is. Like, I'm not just preaching this. I'll, like we pointed to and we're talking about in this conversation. Like, I can point to every three or four months you see in our news flows over the last few years, transactions are being done. We're executing on the business yep. model. And I think that is what's been attracting a lot of the institutional shareholders that we've drawn to the company are investors that basically say you know i like the strategy oh, and by the way like they're executing the strategy and that's that's the that's the key thing it's 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 easy to say it but at, year after year to execute it it starts to become interesting well it's strange i mean in mining you know buy low sell high is a mantra that literally everybody says uh and at capitalist exploits we've been really focused on uranium uh lately we've been putting meaningful amounts of our own money into uranium-focused uh, vehicles. And, you know, we catch a lot of slack for that. And there's a lot of people that, you know, don't just think it's a bad idea, but they hate uranium. They're, mm. they're convinced that the market's never coming back. Um, and it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me. It, I mean, just the simple math of it doesn't make sense that you see these, these producers mining at what, an average of $50 a pound and mm. selling it for $20, $23 a pound. Like, just can't keep going and the world can't just turn off uranium overnight and you know the the common narrative is that this green energy is going to fill that gap but it's not it can't fill the gap in in a year or five years or probably even 25 years so it seems to use another cliche almost like a no-brainer in terms of a truly contrarian counter-cyclical play and it and it certainly is one of those this is this is about uh, when not if and, um, you know, it's always uh, it's a different kind of investment proposition when 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 it is about when, not if. And um, you can't um, argue this. I mean, there's over 400 reactors operating in the world. It's mm -hmm. a depleting commodity. They need uranium every 18 months. Number of reactors connected to the grid uh, over the last few years is over 50 reactors that have come online in 12 different countries. Um, you know, I go back to something that caught my attention really early on starting in my career. And it, it was a simple fact about the world's energy and vis-a-vis -vis the world population. And it's the fact that for most of the last hundred years, one quarter of the world's population has consumed three quarter of the world's energy resources. Okay, so yeah, where, where does this trade go? With 7 billion people in the world and the population will be 9 billion by the time we get to 2040, are we gonna use and consume less electricity? Absolutely not. As every major trend in the world from electric vehicles to mining cryptocurrencies, I mean, you, you name it, does it yeah. need more electricity? Yeah, like the, the world, this is not a world that's gonna need less electricity. It would be well, more While simultaneously reducing our dependence on oil and gas. Exactly, exactly. So no, I, I mean, I agree. I mean, I, I, that's why I think I have, A, I sleep really well at night in terms of, you know, I never, <laughs> people say to me something, it's like, wow, like it's been such a tough go in uranium. Like, how do you guys do it? And I'm like, look, I have so much conviction and belief that this is, 
uh, going to be such an enormous opportunity that companies like UEC and investors who are looking at this sector, I mean, I just think this is one of those kind of generational wealth kind of situations because, again, we're, 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 at, we're in such a depressed environment, yet for a commodity and a source of power generation that truly is going to be the future for clean electricity generation. And the clean part is so important, right? Because look at the air pollution problems. Look at the air quality problems. I mean, it's just not feasible to think that that, that we're going to just continue burning oil to generate electricity. Even the Saudis don't want to do that. The Saudis are trying to reduce their <laughs> dependency on oil. Yeah. I want to build $60 billion worth of nuclear power plants over the next 20 years, right? And so, again, the writing's on the wall. And UEC is also very well capitalized with respect to a lot of its peers. So, I mean the ability to wait until that does turn and you guys have that more than al- almost anyone else you're competing against well that was i think that was evidence in um in an uh, equity fi- financing that we did last year where uh, january of 2017 we uh, wanted to really make sure that we had a treasury in place that would give us uh, um, uh, the, the strength for uh, continuing to execute the business but also to have a bit of war chest to make acquisitions right. um, and what we did was uh announced uh, an equity uh, public offering, and we ended up with seven or six times more demand than what we intended to raise. And how much did you raise? So we ended up closing on $26 million Mm -hmm. U.S., which, again, is remarkable, I think, and I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back, but I think that, you know, being six or seven times oversubscribed for any uh, play in the resource sector, any company in the resource sector, typically happens when the commodity price has really taken off and you're in a bull market. Yes. You would have thought that the response we got was due to the fact that uranium was at $40 a pound. And no, uranium was at 20 So I'm going to ask you to not be humble for a second and to tell me why you think there was... Investors had such interest in UEC. What set your team apart from some of your competitors and from even other commodities that were more attractive at the time? Well, okay, maybe it'll sound like I'm, I'm being a bit uh, uh, braggadocious, but, uh, but, but look, I think these are just facts. The fact is that no other uranium company in the world, not even Cameco, has a former United States energy secretary, especially at a time of very acute geopolitical issues, especially yes. in the U.S. No other uranium company has that. So for us, I mean, for me, it's a real honor and privilege to be in a position where as CEO... I can pick up the phone and call my chairman, and he's the former U.S. Energy Secretary. I'm speaking about Spencer Abraham. And he also sits on the board of Occidental Petroleum, which is a $50 billion company. I mean, to have a a profile person of that caliber and experience, you don't typically see in a small-cap resource company. And what is the market cap of UEC right now for comparison? (laughs) About $220 million. Yeah. Um, Scott Melby, our executive VP, which you, you must have on, on your show and interview. Scott has 34 years of experience in the uranium business, former president of Cameco, formerly with Uranium One. When Kazatomprom wanted to do their privatization planning, uh, Scott became a, a strategic advisor to the chairman and CEO of Kazatomprom up until recently, advising them on the school public process. Okay, yeah. So, you know, I mean, you look at that and that, that the, the team around UEC to me really stands out. You asked me about what are the things that stands out. And this doesn't include, of course, the, the technical team that we have. And I think just to capture the essence of our technical team, 
the market and investors have seen that UEC's technical team built our Palangana mine on schedule, on time, on budget in 2010, and we operated for four years. So this is not a technical team. You have to ask and wonder, can they do it? We've done it. That's where the proof of concept comes in. Right. So that's, that's one huge competitive advantage, the mix of experience that the team has with skin in the game, right? So you have a team that has experience running the Department of Energy, has experience running Cameco, has the entrepreneurial energy and technical proof of concept, but again, skin in the game. And I tell you, it's this combination with institute recovery projects that are fully permitted because you and I know um, it takes time to permit assets. We just talked about that. So for us yes. to have p- fully permitted projects for production in South Texas and Wyoming that are institute recovery at a time where U.S. production, I think, is going to trade at a premium. Well, something also that stood out to me is you have a fully permitted processing facility as well in Texas. I should have pointed that out. And you have (laughs) numerous deposits within proximity to that as well, right? Yeah. So let's talk about what that is um, and how unusual that is today. I think it's unusual because, again, going back to permitting and how long it takes to permit, there's a real scarcity value with having a fully built and licensed uranium processing plant. I mean, first of all, Imagine going out there and saying in a neighborhood, you want to build a processing plant there. I mean, you would have a lot of opposition anywhere. Our plant has been there for a long time. It's 45 minutes south of San Antonio, so it's not in some weird remote area. Right. It's very accessible as a central hub to our hub-and-spoke strategy where we can uh, develop uranium mines throughout South Texas, which is a very large area, very kind of underexplored area. But at the same time, have the benefit of knowing that when we find uranium, when we permit it and start mining it using a low-cost institute recovery, we can ship the uranium-loaded resin to Hobson, and Hobson, where our processing plant is, again, is built and ready to go with 2 million pound physical capacity at a time where total U.S. production this year will be less than a million pounds. And are there any other similar plants in that vicinity? They're, they're, they're real kind of operating ISR uh, pr- plants in the United States today are really in Wyoming. In Wyoming, mm-hmm. you have Cameco, which has been kind of curtailing its uh, ISR operations, but still does have a foot, uh, real footprint in Wyoming uh, with their Smith Highland uh, ISR plant in uh, the state of Wyoming. Uranium One, in a very kind of controversial way, has uranium mines in Wyoming, which is all, you know, because it's owned by the Russian government and right. has been getting a lot of scrutiny over, well, how, how did the Russian government get their hands on these, uh, on these assets? And Cameco also has a U- ISR uranium mine in uh, Nebraska, their Crow Butte operation, which is operating as well. So, you know, in terms of having active operating ISR plants, uh, you, you have a real scarcity factor, scarcity value uh, in the U.S. And that's where I think you're pointing out is that, look, there's strategic value for a little company to be in charge of the infrastructure. Well, it allows you to corner the market in Texas as well, right? Uh, I mean, everything in that area sort of has to come to you. Uh, it's true, and I just want to... Uh, you know, I, I, I keep this on my uh, desk, which is the study that was done by U.S. Uh, Geological Survey. And um, the U.S. Geological Survey has done two studies over the last few years on where in the U.S. Uh, to, um, uh, to look for, for uranium, where, where the untapped potential is in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And twice these reports have focused, once in 2015 and once in 2017, 
their conclusion has been that there are hundreds of millions of pounds of recoverable uranium in uh, South Texas that are untapped, that these areas, this, this area has some of the biggest potential for new uranium discoveries compared to anywhere in the U.S. And so, look, I get very excited about that, right? <laughs> I get excited about the fact that we have infrastructure advantage, not just anywhere, but in the heart of a region that is being, you know, written about time and time again over the last few years as having untapped potential that hundreds of millions of pounds of recoverable uranium, as reported by USGS, could be found here. And this is an energy-friendly, business-friendly part of the U.S. You know, it's not next to Hollywood, California, or somewhere where you might just have difficulty right. getting permits. This is energy country. So I get excited about the fact that we have this proof of concept, this infrastructure, this know-how, these local community relationships we've been investing in for over a decade now. What is the feeling in these communities? People are excited to get things up and going again and want to see the plant running, want to see the mines running? You know, it's, it's a big part. You know, South Texas is a big area, and so we've invested quite extensively in, in community relationships. For the most part, um, we, we've seen um, very strong uh, landowner support for um, developing uranium projects. Uh, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, you, you never take the support for granted. There are definitely, you know, people and groups you come across who want, to demo- want, want you as a company to demonstrate that you're going to mine with best practices, uh, with safety and with, you know, a, a good track record and, and, of course, and, yeah. and all of that. And look, we don't take anything for granted, but I think we can demonstrate that, you know what, there's a great regulatory system in place in the U.S. and in Texas. It's not a walk through the park. You have to go through years of permitting before you can um, operate. And luckily, um, you know, ISR mining is not too dissimilar to oil and gas production in some in some right. ways. Right. And so you can connect the dots and really kind of get landowners in parts of South Texas that are used to seeing what a brine operation looks like and right. what an oil and gas operation looks like. It's not that difficult to get your head wrapped around. All right, I see this ISR mining is actually kind of a clever way to recover the uranium yeah. out. So there's a familiarity there of just <clears throat> drilling a hole in the ground as opposed yeah. to ripping up an entire open pit, for example. You nailed it. That that actually makes such a big difference for local landowners. So what can we expect to see out of UEC over the next year? Busy. I mean, we, ex- we got a very kind of busy schedule of, of various activities ahead of us, but you can expect the following. I mean, number one, you can expect us to remain 100% on hedge. That's a very important part of our position where uh, we, we believe in creating long-term shareholder value by being unhedged and full exposure to the uranium price. Uh, as, you, as you may have covered with, um, you know, in the, as, as you've studied the sector, a lot of companies, the bigger ones, uh, have signed long-term contracts historically. So right. that puts a bit of a ceiling on the price exposure, in my opinion. But if you have these low-cost ISR projects, you have a bit of financial flexibility to remain unhedged, so we'll, we'll remain unhedged. We continue to believe that the being at a 10-year low in the uranium market is an excellent window to make acquisitions. Just recently, we closed on our North Reno Creek acquisition in Wyoming. So um, we'll look for those accretive acquisitions in areas that we have a know-how and knowledge. So uh, that, that's, that's been a part of our strategy. We want to continue de-risking our existing projects. So at Burke Hollow, for example, where we've been permitting, drilling, growing the resource base, we'll do more work like that on our Wyoming and Texas projects. 
Um, in Wyoming, we want to consolidate the various acquisitions we made at Reno Creek under one new 43101, advance that to feasibility, uh, make permit amendments to make sure all the land that we've acquired continues to fall and the resources fall under one mine permit. Um, and uh, really the main project in South Texas that we're focused on is Burke Hollow in terms of more drilling and more advancements there. Uh, and um, really also looking at um, uh, ways we can be creative with our non-core assets. You know, for UEC over the last few years, we were opportunistic in buying a world-class titanium deposit in Paraguay that we're looking to monetize in the coming year. Uh, we have a, a significant vanadium byproduct at our Slick Rock project uh, in Colorado, uh, 70 million pounds of vanadium to go hmm. with our 11 million pound resource. Vanadium prices are at a three-year high. So we have uh, we have a wide kind of uh, and a very robust portfolio. So even though there's a very kind of, again, strong focus on ISR, I'd love to demonstrate in the next 12 to 18 months that some of our non-core projects, especially where we have the titanium and vanadium uh, credits, uh, could be monetized and we can become a financial resource that we can plow right back into our main uh, ISR business that we want to grow and build into a low-cost producer. So ultimately, we want to continue building our way towards uh, being a low-cost ISR producer in the U.S. at 4 million pounds of production, which would be 2 million from Texas, 2 million from Wyoming. We've got the the building blocks to be the largest low-cost U.S. uranium producer. And, and that's a great business opportunity to go to go for. You'd be, a, you know, it puts us as a, makes us a mid-sized producer even on a worldwide basis. And I really believe that the U.S. opportunity would be Something that could trade at a at a premium uh, because mm-hmm. of some of the policy changes that may be coming in as a result of this administration that you and I were talking about earlier. And you see that in other commodities. You see that in gold. Often, gold U.S. focused gold companies trading at a premium because Americans who want to invest in American gold and there's well, no and reason I, not to expect that in uranium. And and not just not just necessarily. Uh, I don't think you need to be an American. I think if, if as an investor looking at the resource sector, you see more and more geopolitical risk over the last uh, couple of years. You know, big projects and I, I won't name projects or companies. I'll just maybe name some countries. Like look at Indonesia, right? Look at Zambia, look at Tanzania. Uh, you know, even look at issues. Uh, you know, down in. Uh, Parts of South America. I mean, you know, it, I don't. Th- I, I think if you're a commodity-focused investor, the last year or two, you're starting to maybe appreciate being in U.S. and Canada or you know more stable jurisdictions, and 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 you recognize that you know this is a tough enough business to be in already. You can just reduce that that, that geopolitical risk a bit, and um, and and still create value for your investment and returns. Um, I think that's what's driving it, and, and, and I agree with you that there's definitely a, a U.S. appeal and U.S. premium, but I think it appeals to more than just American investors. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. All right, so if people want to learn more about uh, Uranium Energy Corp or uh, Gold Mining Inc. or yourself, where can they find you and where should they have a look? Well, well I think uh, we, we try to make ourselves accessible, but uh, the easy places would be uh, for Uranium Energy, www.uraniumenergy.com. And for gold mining, it's www.goldmining.com. You could always follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Amir at Nani. 
and um, we're fairly active there where you kind of get a more direct sense of what I'm thinking and up to and, uh, and tweeting about and writing about. So a uh, lot of good ways to, uh, I guess that's kind of the one benefit of a, a younger CEO at, in the resource business. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you make yourself more uh, available. But uh, yeah, look, at, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a good start there, right? Good. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk today. It's my pleasure. All right. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.